Hi there. Thank you for joining us on the Redeemer Church Podcast. Here at Redeemer, we exist to see Christ exalted in our church, community, and world. It is our mission to lead people into the presence of God, devotion to His Word, authentic fellowship with others, and discovering their ministry. We hope this podcast is just one of the ways you connect to God's presence this week. Let's check out this week's message. Good morning. This is our last week in our parable series, and what a journey it has been. In our first week, Pastor Adam walked us through the parable of the Good Samaritan, and then the following week, he explained to us about the prodigal son. In our third week, Pastor Leanne challenged us to be good soil with the help of Emily Geister's beautiful rendering of the soil parable, which if you haven't seen it yet, still right through those doors and on the back wall. So if you turn and look at the sanctuary, it's there uh, and you should go and admire it. It's really quite the work. And last week, Dr. Daniel Bunn helped us to see that not only did the Pharisees have much to learn, but the disciples did as well. And I don't know about you, but I find myself to be far too much like both the Pharisees and the disciples far too often. This week, Our conversation will focus on the kingdom of heaven parables in Matthew 13. And we're going to be specifically looking at two rather short parables, the parable of the treasure in the field and the parable of the fine pearls. They're basically the same story with just different objects uh, talking about them. So please open your Bible or your Bible app to Matthew 13, 44 to 46. If you're the type of person who happens to not usually do that because, you know, the passage always ends up being on the screen anyway, I'm going to invite you to really open your Bible to Matthew chapter 13, because we're going to be jumping around in that that passage a little bit and drawing from that context. Uh, More on that to come. Uh, So while you're finding the passage, let's lean into the context a little bit. Uh, The Old Testament professor of mine that I had and I, I loved learning under her, used to say this refrain to us over and over again, context is king when doing sense-making of any type of scripture. And what that meant to her is that we need to understand as best as we can what's going on in the larger narrative of where the passage falls, what's going on in the history. We have to get ourselves as close to the original time period and the original explaining of these texts as possible in order for us to then apply them to our daily lives. And this is especially the case in these parables that situate themselves amongst six other parables in the same chapter. And one New Testament scholar talked about the chapters leading up to Matthew 13 in this way. He said, chapters 11 and 12 have illustrated the growing divisions among men in their attitude to Jesus, culminating in the sharp contrast between true disciples and all others in chapters 12, 46 to 50. Division and the problem of how some could reject Jesus's message while others responded are the underlying themes of this chapter too, this chapter being Matthew 13. And the parables thus provide some explanation of the attitudes revealed in the preceding narratives. R.T. France makes an important point, and here's the important point. 
There are growing numbers of divisions among people in their attitudes about who Jesus is and what Jesus has come to do. And it's these growing divisions about Jesus between his followers and the Pharisees uh, that provides the backdrop for Jesus talking about these kingdom of heaven parables in Matthew 13. Furthermore, It's also clear that Matthew organized these six parables in connection with one another. They're they're laid out intentionally. And what this means is these six parables together come to give us a picture of what the kingdom of God is like. Matthew intends for us to kind of read them back to back to back to back, not to just read one and leave. We'll get a little piece of the kingdom if we read one and leave, but not the whole picture of what's going on. And because we need and need to rely on those other things in Matthew chapter 13, these other parables, I'm going to give us a quick 30,000-foot view of what these parables were teaching, what Jesus was teaching through them. So in the parable of the sower, which Pastor Leanne did an amazing job of explaining to us a couple of weeks ago, by the way, We learn that the soil of our hearts matter for the gospel to take root in our lives and produce fruit, that our heart posture matters. Whether or not we have fertile soil to hear the the good news will dictate whether or not we produce fruit of the good seed that's planted in us. Then in the parable of the weeds, which is the next parable that follows in Matthew 13, we learn that there are two types of people growing together on this earth. Those that are striving to produce a harvest for the kingdom of God, basically the followers of Jesus, his disciples, and those that are choking out the gospel, those who might be incidentally, maybe not even on purpose, but they are preventing a good harvest from their attitudes, actions, and engagements when it guards to the kingdom of heaven. And then in the parable of the mustard seed, we also learn that the kingdom of heaven begins small, like the smallest of all garden seeds, and yet grows over time exponentially that it is the largest tree or plant in the entire garden. And there's a parable about yeast working through dough, and the the concept is the same, small little bit of material, and it infects the entire batch. And all of this information... Uh, Chapters 11, 12, all the parables that we just talked about provide the backdrop for our two very quick parables that we're going to read. I hope you've had enough time to find the passage by now, uh, and I'll read it for us. The kingdom of heaven is like treasure in a field. When a man found it, he hid it again, and then in his joy went and sold all that he had and bought that field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant looking for fine pearls. When he found one of great value, he went away and sold everything he had and bought it. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's start unpacking the parable a bit. And the first place that we have to start, in my opinion, is this language of kingdom of heaven. It's a phrase that Matthew uses all through the gospel. You run into it a lot, and it's a theme for him. And Matthew uses this frame, this theme or phrase, kingdom of heaven, in a way to talk about God's kingdom, 
or Jesus' kingdom, this thing that Jesus has come to inaugurate by his life, death, and resurrection. And we, on the other side of the cross, are working and living and moving in the midst of the kingdom, whether we want to acknowledge it or live into it or not. And that's, that's what's going on with this kingdom of heaven language. When talking about similar parables, Luke chooses the phrase kingdom of God instead. And the two are pretty much interchangeable for talking about Jesus's kingdom and where he's from and what he's doing here. That said, when Jesus talks about his kingdom in these parables, I don't think that Jesus is primarily talking about when he fully consummates his kingdom, his second coming, the end of all things, if you will. Another way of thinking it is, I don't think that Jesus is thinking through Revelation chapter 21 and 22 as he's explaining these parables of what the kingdom of heaven is like. I don't think we have to wait that long to experience the kingdom of heaven. Of course, I'm sure there are some things that reverberate out into Revelation 21 and 22, but I, the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven, is tangible. It's here. It's Jesus has started it, and he's leaning in. And for that matter, I also think that it's not meant to be used as tools or weapons or equipment to start saying things like, you're in, you're out, you're in, you're out, you're in, you're out, you're in, you're out. I don't think that's what Jesus is doing. I also don't think what he's doing is trying to frame up some sort of doctrine about eternal damnation in this point. And I think we like to incidentally use Matthew 13 for both of these things. Uh, we use it as a rubric or a guide to say who's in and who's out. And then we frame up some of our uh, thoughts about final judgment around these passages too. Um, rather, what I think Jesus is doing is what he's been up to. Uh, he's been up to pronouncing the kingdom of God. He's been up to talking about the gospel. He's been up to sharing what he's doing with people and inviting them along on the journey. In other words, what I believe Jesus has been up to is he's been communicating the gospel message. And unlike Paul, who's very direct. So Paul, when we read in his letters, he tells us exactly what the kingdom of God is and he's telling us exactly how to live by it, or at least he's trying to. Jesus communicates to us the kingdom of God the kingdom of heaven, in parables, in stories, uh, in images, in pictures. And when confronted by the gospel, when confronted by the gospel, either by Jesus or by Paul, we can have one of two possible responses, participating in the kingdom of heaven or not participating in the kingdom of heaven. Participating in the kingdom of heaven or not participating in the kingdom of heaven. Now, the internal logic of the two stories are simple. Someone comes across something of great value and they decide to sell everything they have gladly, willingly to go and buy the thing that they've found. In the treasure, in the field, if they go out and buy the whole field because of this treasure. In the pearl, they go and sell everything to buy the pearl of great price. Of course, the treasure and the pearl are symbols for the kingdom of heaven. In this way, Jesus is telling us that the kingdom of heaven is so worthwhile that we should give everything up so that we can participate in it. That's the general logic of this parable. And we see if we were to zoom out a bit 
and look at Matthew 13 from, say, a 30,000-foot view, we see that the kingdom of heaven parables are essentially Jesus' way of communicating the gospel and describing the two possible responses to the gospel message. I think we try to make these parables be eschatological in nature or end times oriented in nature, when in reality, I think what's going on a little bit more clearly is what happens, Jesus is describing what happens when we encounter his message about his kingdom now. And the gospel of Jesus Christ is literally the announcement of good news. It's the good news that the kingdom of heaven is a real kingdom and we have an opportunity to participate in it today. It's not some abstract notion. It's not some sort of thing that's far off in the distance. It's tangible. It's practical. It has real implications. It's a way that we lean into orienting our daily life. In fact, the more of us that lean into his good news, the more, of it, the more of us that take it seriously and participate in the kingdom of heaven, the larger the kingdom of heaven grows, just like the parable of the mustard seed, just like the yeast. It's an open invitation from Jesus to say, I'm including you into the growth of the kingdom of heaven. Will you join me in partnership? Will you join with me in proclaiming to the world that there's another way that we can go about doing life? And that's a life oriented around the kingdom of heaven. So now, although the gospel is an announcement of a real kingdom in the here and now, it's our responsibility what Jesus is doing is inviting us into a discernment process to discern whether that kingdom truly is a treasure worth giving up everything for. That's our choice. Is it worth selling everything we have to lean into the kingdom? So let's talk about for a little bit, what makes the kingdom of heaven treasure? And there are three things, in my opinion, that make the kingdom of heaven a treasure. The character of the king, the values of the kingdom, and the culture of the kingdom. The character of the king, the values of the kingdom, and the culture of the kingdom. For a few minutes, let's talk about the character of King Jesus. In Matthew 9, 35 to 36, we are told, Jesus went through all the towns and villages, preaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom and healing every disease and sickness. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion on them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. He had compassion on them. In this way, Jesus was compassionate. He pulled little children onto his lap and blessed them. He cared for the people that were dying. He weeped over Lazarus' death. He makes deep, intimate connections with people because he truly cares about them. He has compassion. Jesus also abounds in mercy and grace. Picture this. Picture that you are wrongly accused of something. You're drug into the streets 
and chained to a post and beat nearly to a pulp. Then taken from that post, made to carry a cross that could have weighed upwards of 200 pounds and walk it through the city, carry it up on a hill, have nails driven through your forearms and through your feet, a crown of thorns shoved on your head. And in your dying breath, say these words, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. Can you imagine? Can you imagine being put in that moment and looking around and saying, Lord, Heavenly Father, my Father, if these people knew what they were doing, they wouldn't be doing it. Have mercy on them. Forgive them. Jesus is full of mercy and grace. I can't fathom being in that situation and doing what he did. Jesus is righteous. As seen by his clearing of the temple in Matthew 21, that system that Jesus walked into when he walks into the temple, the priests were literally abusing and taking financial advantage of the poor. And so what would happen is a family would raise a fattened calf or whatever its offering was and meticulously care for it, pour all of their resources into it so they could bring it on a long journey offer it in the temple for their atoning sacrifice. And here's what would happen. The priest would look at it and go, it's just not good enough. You can't sacrifice this animal. But wait, we have this illustrious amount of sheep that are ready for you at a very expensive price that you can purchase. And this is what was going on. The poor were being exploited. And Jesus in righteous anger flips over the tables and drives them out of the temple because he cannot stand for his people to be taken advantage of. He was sinless, he was righteous, and he cares. Jesus demonstrates his immense love by caring for the sick, the poor, the defenseless, and the little children. And perhaps, most inspiring of all, he is sacrificial. If you see them all on the screen there, uh, ignore my grammar mistake, that one of these things is not like the other. Um, That's supposed to be like an adjective or something, so my apologies. He's sacrificial. He's willing to die to save his friends and the world, but not just his friends, even his enemies. Think back to that moment on the cross. He does not even want the people that were killing him to suffer at the hands of their mistake. Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they're doing. I tell you what, when I step back and I look at who Jesus is and how he cared and his character traits, I go, that's the kingdom of, that's the king of the kingdom of heaven. And that's a king I want to serve. I don't know about you. I get excited to think that I could serve that person. That's my leader. That's the person I can cling to and learn from, that man. Sounds like someone I'd want to serve. Now, these characteristics establish certain values in the kingdom. Because of Jesus' righteousness, there is justice in the kingdom of heaven. Everyone is treated as they ought to be treated. Because of his righteousness, because of his mercy and his grace, there's justice, but also because of his mercy, grace, 
compassion and love, there is peace in the kingdom of heaven. We don't have to worry about being good enough. We don't have to worry about making it. We don't have to worry about how people are thinking about us. We don't have to worry about being abused by others because Jesus is righteous, because Jesus is abounding in love, grace, and mercy. There's peace. There's peace in the kingdom of heaven. And because of Jesus's sacrificial nature, because of the way that he lived and died and was raised again for our behalf, there is freedom in the kingdom of heaven, freedom from sin, a freedom which enables us to fully live into how we're created, a freedom that restores us to the very beginning where we're capable of having a deep, abounding relationship with our heavenly father and our creator that loves us more than words could ever express. We have that freedom in the kingdom of heaven. It's there. Now, all of these characteristics and all of these values, they come together to make something called culture. Here's a quick definition of culture. And if you were to read a bunch of different leadership magazines, culture is kind of in vogue right now. It's the buzzword of leadership management. And you can read tons and tons of books and get a million different definitions of culture. So here's our working definition of culture for this morning. Culture is how we do things around here. It's the water in which we swim. It's the world in which we live. It's what our experiences are. It's how we react and respond. And for an organization, culture is the most important part of the puzzle. It just is because it dictates who stays and becomes an integral part of who we are and what we do and who leaves. Now, here's an example of culture that many of us have experienced. One of the biggest organizational cultures that we encounter daily is an organization known as Chick-fil-A. Have you all ever heard of Chick-fil-A? Let me see your hands. Chick-fil-A, Chick-fil-A fans, yes. That sandwich is intoxicating. I don't know how else to say it. It is amazing. What's also amazing to me is they've built this kind of empire based on one sandwich. Everybody else has a smorgasbord menu. Chick-fil-A, you can order like two things. You can get the chicken fingers or you can get the chicken sandwich. Which one do you want? And then at lunchtime, have you ever been in the Chick-fil-A line? It's dinner by the time you're done with the lunch line. It's so long. Well, it, and that's not even true. They're so organized now that, right, you, you pull into the line and you better know your order because someone's knocking on your window as soon as you pull in and then you get your lunch before you leave the line. It's unbelievable. Their culture's real and tangible and palpable. And yet what sets them above their competition is not just their product, but how they treat their customers and their employees. Most of us know their tagline, which is, my pleasure. Right? Y'all have heard this. Now, the kingdom of heaven has a certain culture to it too, especially around how tr people are treated. In the kingdom of heaven, people are accepted. They're valued. They're loved. Accepted. Jesus, despite when you were far from him, despite not having any relationship with him, maybe even if you were warring against him. He knew you. He laid down his life for you. He has an unconditional, unfailing type of love wired 
around you. You are accepted. And what's even more amazing is not only does he want to accept you, he wants to transform you. He loves you just as you are, but he refuses to leave you that way because he knows what's in your heart and who you can be. You're valued. In the language of Paul in 1 Corinthians 13, we all come together as the body of Christ. We each each have our unique gifts, talents, and abilities, and he wants us to use them. We can't do this without one another. Who you are matters, and it's valuable to the kingdom, but even more so than who you are and how you're wired, you are loved. Unconditionally loved. Not loved just as a friend, but loved as a son of God. Loved so much that Jesus says, here, come, sit on my throne and rule with me like my father. And I sat on his throne and ruled for all eternity. I can't comprehend that kind of love. That's the love that we have in Jesus. Friends, it would not be possible for me to oversell you on the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven. I couldn't do it. But here's the problem. Jesus' gospel about the kingdom of heaven confronts us with a choice. And that confrontation often results in an emotional response. Here's the choice. We can either belong to our kingdom or the kingdom of heaven. What the kingdom of heaven does not permit is passive acquiescence. In other words, We can't try and straddle the fence, keeping one foot in our kingdom and one foot in the kingdom of heaven and say we're participating in the kingdom. When we do that, we're still trying to be Lord. We're trying to adopt the culture of that kingdom, morph it with our own culture and do our own thing. We're still calling ourselves God. It's an all or nothing sort of proposition and people respond in it in one of two ways. Some sell everything they have. They sell everything they have so they can buy the field. And yet a rich young ruler later is told the same thing, sell everything you have and follow me. And he leaves sad because he can't imagine taking that type of sacrifice. Why is it easy for some of us to give up everything for the kingdom of heaven. And yet for others of us, we just want to cling on and we want to hold on. So I'm going to leave us with a few questions that I want us to think through. How have you responded to Jesus's kingdom? Are you in a reactionary space? Are you like, no, my kingdom, I need my kingdom. Are you all the way in? And you're like, yes, Sell everything. I need to have this treasure and this pearl. Or are you one foot in one and one foot in the other going, maybe I can just sit here and have the best of both worlds? I invite you to ponder that question this week and invite the Holy Spirit to speak maybe some hard truth into how we can be nudged a little bit further off of that fence and a little more firmly in the kingdom of God. And don't worry as he pulls out some of these things out of our hearts, as he refines us, he is abounding in grace. He's abounding in love. He's abounding in mercy. And he will partner with us and woo us further into the kingdom of God. Amen. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, you are amazing.
we stand like the angels in all of your gospel, of your love, of your care. Lord, we want to be like the person who sells everything to be into your kingdom. And yet there are things we still try to sometimes build our own little castle within your kingdom. We try to straddle the fence. We try to have the best of both worlds. Forgive us for those moments. Holy Spirit, lead us into truth. Let us exchange the lies that we have bought into from the enemy for the truth of your gospel and your goodness. Help us to participate in eternity today for your sake and the sake of your son. In Jesus' name, amen. Once again, thank you for listening to the Redeemer Church Podcast. To stay connected with all that God is doing here at Redeemer, you can visit RedeemerTulsa.org or find us on Facebook or Instagram. Have a blessed week.